So I would really encourage people to, even if you're not sure if you want to go into academia or go into tech or, you know, some other field to keep in touch with folks and like have those conversations, learn what different companies and different jobs are like, just to keep your mind open and and get a sense of like what's out there and what will be the best fit for, you know, the kind of lifestyle you want and the type of problems you want to work on. I do think it's important to make sure that you're developing transferable skills like Python and being familiar with some of these machine learning concepts that you can apply to PhD research, but also apply to just like general growing your, your tool set and then like leveraging that network so that you stand out above, you know, the hundreds of other applicants that maybe have uh, more direct industry experience. Welcome to the Astronomers Turn Data Scientist podcast. I'm Joseph Ahern, one of the co-hosts, and I've been a data scientist for about a year and a half. And I'm Jeff Silverman, one of the other co-hosts, and been doing data science professionally for just over seven years now. Great, and our guest today is Jess Kirkpatrick. Hi, Jess. Hi, I'm Jess. I've been a data scientist for 12 years now. It's more than both 11 years, 12 years. <laughs> awesome. Before you got into data science, what were some of the things that you did research with physics, astrophysics, cosmology, that sort of thing that let that ultimately led you to be a part of the astronomers turn, turn data scientist community kind of like before you knew that data science was a thing what were the things that you were doing sure so um i had been doing coding and data analysis um in undergrad for research so i learned to code my my freshman year of of undergrad um, and did um, my like undergrad thesis on data analysis and um, simulations. Um, and then in grad school, I um, worked with David Schlegel, who is a PI um, on the Sloan Digital Sky Survey and BOSS. And I don't even know what the, the new um, iteration of that telescope is now. Um, but I was looking at large-scale structure um, using uh, quasars from, from BOSS and from SDSS. So my thesis involved um, a, lot of, a lot of data analysis. We were using um, different, like what I would now call data science methods, but that wasn't the word that we were using. Um, but analytics and uh, machine learning methods to try to separate and classify stars from quasars um, in not spectral data, but gosh, just normal, normal photometric data. And then um, so that we could follow up with spectral, um, spectral, I like follow up with boss. So, um, so I use like neural nets and um, different like analysis functions to try to separate those. So, and um, I, I deliberately chose to work in Python because it seemed like it was a more flexible language um, that was being used um, not just 
in academia, but in industry, I wasn't sure if I wanted to stay in academia. And at the time, astronomy was like very IDL. And I didn't know that many people that were using IDL outside of astronomy. So um, so yeah, I, I, I was doing a lot of, of the things that I do now, but instead of applied to like humans doing things on a website or an app, it was um, data from a telescope. Um, so yeah. Good. So yeah. You mentioned I know my, oh, my advisor was using IDL too, but he encouraged me to keep using Python. So it was just kind of where we were at, you know, in the past five, 10 years. Yeah. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. I was just going to say, Jess, uh, you know, you mentioned you've been, been a professional data scientist for quite a while. You're certainly one of the, the first people that I know of that, that made the transition from sort of academic astro and physics research to uh, the tech industry and, and data science specifically. And, you know, you, you've written some blog posts on, on Medium. I was just pulling them up. September of 2013 is one of your posts, Astronomer to Data Diva. Uh, it's an excellent post. I read it, you know, probably 10 years ago, I think, uh, you know, when it came out and, and people I've met over the years at ATDS and, and other data science groups have referenced it and, and, you know, have met you in person and, you know, sometimes didn't even make that connection that they've read some of this work. So uh, we'll put up the links to that. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of those articles are, are great. So two, two questions here kind of buried in my rambling. One, you know, given that, that this was, you know, early days for people making this transition, early days for even the field of data science in the tech industry, you know, how did you go about making that transition? And then the second one, which potentially will take a bit longer is, you know, if you could think back to that time and what you wrote about back in 2013, 2015, you know, what, what are some pieces that are still accurate and what are some pieces that have, uh, of advice that maybe have changed over the past decade or so? So uh, feel free to take it in, in either order, but I really want to hear the answer to both of those questions. So I sure. have a, a twofer. Sure. So, um, so yeah, I, I really struggled uh, finding my first job. I um, had a two body problem at the time. So me and my partner were trying to find jobs in the same place. And I was not sure if I wanted to do more of an industry job or try to continue in academia. I had like not loved my PhD and found it really challenging, but I also didn't know what else I could do. Um, so I did something which I, I don't recommend other people do, which is I just applied to like everything and anything that I thought I could possibly get. So I was applying to postdocs. I was applying to teaching colleges that didn't need postdocs to, um, you know, higher faculty. Um, I was applying to finance jobs. I was applying to consulting jobs. I was applying to data jobs. I applied to science communication jobs. So, um, you know, I was all over the place and I probably sent out over a hundred applications and had very few interviews. It was a very hard time in my life. I remember at one point talking to my partner after, you know, six months of applying and not really hearing anything from anywhere and being like, maybe I should just be a barista at Starbucks. And he's like, well, that wouldn't be so bad. You like coffee. And I'm like, do you want to be a barista at Starbucks? No offense if you're a barista at Starbucks. It's a very great job. But, you know, um, I was hoping to do something that applied my 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 science background. Um, so, yeah, it was like a, it was really, really hard and um and confusing time and uh I 
and in the end, after all of that, I had one consulting offer for a consulting company. I had one postdoc offer and I had a faculty offer at a teaching school. Um, and then I, I had my, my first data science offer. Um, and uh, which was like lucky that I had that many options in so many different places. But um, ultimately, the the data science offer uh, paid more and was in a city where my partner had a also had a job. Um, and that was sort of why I took it. Um, I just was like, well, I'll try it. It seems like it's aligning with like my personal life. And um, if I hate it, I'll you know, go back on the academic job search in a year and, and, you know, just to see how it goes. Um, and then within like two weeks, I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely like, like the right thing for me. Um, I didn't like Jeff mentioned, I didn't know that many people who had done the transition. So I didn't have, there wasn't something like insight, um, or like these, there maybe were boot camps, but there weren't these like kind of feeder programs for academics. Um, and so I was really lucky that I actually just happened to know someone that I had went to undergrad with who was working at Microsoft, which is where I got my first job as a, a data analyst. And they they didn't even call it data science when I got my first job. I was like a insights manager. I was an insights manager. Um, and then they later transitioned that title to data scientist after that became the hot term. Um, but yeah, I knew him and... Um, he like referred me and got me a foot in the door. And, um, I think if I hadn't had that connection, I, I wouldn't have gotten that job because I got no other data science offers and, um, didn't even get interviews for any data science or data tech jobs other than the one that I had the connection. So then to, so the reason why I wrote all those post was because it was so hard for me and I struggled and I was found it. It took me so long and I did made so many mistakes that I wanted to share some of that experience and try to make it just a little bit easier for whoever came next and also put my name out there so that if people wanted a connection and wanted someone to help them, um, that they hadn't, they had a name of someone who, who they could reach out to because I didn't have that. And I just was like, well, what do I wish I had had, you know, a year ago when I was doing this. So I tried to do that for other people. Um, and it's been really great. I've, I've, I've talked to lots of people as they're deciding whether or not they want to make this transition. And, um, you know, a lot of those connections have become friends and have become colleagues and, um, you know, and, and I, I've gotten to see people, a lot of people make this transition and, and, you know, this community of astronomy to data science is, is kind of a manifestation of that. Um, all right. So I think I only answered one question. What was the other question? What, what would I do? What is different about job searches? Or? Yeah. I mean, if you, if you think back to the stuff that you were writing or the stuff that you experienced, uh, you know, what, what is, what has changed over, over time, right? Like there's definitely some advice, you know, that I think is pretty bog standard. Uh, but, you know, I'm curious to, to know what, where you think things have, have changed over maybe mistakes that you made or, you know, advice that you would give somebody 10 years ago versus, one year ago or today, you know, how, how might that be different? Sure. I'm um, so I, I do think one thing that's a lot 
easier is since there's a lot more people who have done this, most people have a personal connection with somebody who is in the tech industry from their PhD program or from their school. And that I really do encourage leveraging personal connections because that's still, I think, how most people get a first job or even get jobs after their first job is knowing somebody or having a friend of a friend. Um, and, and that can go both ways. Not only does it help you get your foot in the door, but it also helps you know, like, oh, hey, this is a cool company because my buddy is giving me the inside scoop of like, you know, what it's like to, to, to work there. And so I think that um, can really, you know, make it be a, be clear that it's a better fit in both directions. Um, so while when I was in grad school, I sort of thought like, oh, networking is like, BS or like, you know, not worth my time or like, you know, fake or whatever. Why would I, why would I be on LinkedIn? Um, now I'm realizing that, you know, a lot of that is super important. Um, and, and it's not, and it's very, it's not just for like selfish reasons, like, like it can be very mutually beneficial to have a community of people where you can go to for advice or input or like, you know, asking about how they set up things in their company. And um, so all along my career, it has been very helpful to have a community of people who are working on similar problems that I can get, get help from. And, and also when I'm looking for jobs, they're helpful. And when I'm looking to hire people, it's helpful to have that community because both are hard. It's both, it's hard to find the right person to hire. It's also hard to find the, the right job. So I would really encourage people to, even if you're not sure if you want to go into academia or go into tech or, you know, some other field to keep in touch with folks and like have those conversations, learn what different companies and different jobs are like, um, just to keep your mind open and, and get a sense of like what's out there and what will be the best fit for, you know, the kind of lifestyle you want um, and the type of problems you want to work on. Um, so I, that's something that I think is slightly easier. Um, but you know, uh, I think now that data science is a much more kind of popular career and, you know, a lot of people know what it is. It's, um, there's master's programs, there's boot camps, there's a lot of people who are already data scientists it is a little bit more competitive in terms of there's just a lot of people who are already established in this field. And so if you're applying for a more junior position as somebody with a PhD, you're going to be kind of applying next to people who maybe don't have a PhD, but they have several years of experience working in industry. And, um, you know, that's that's a different set of skill sets. And, and, you know, and, and that, that's just, that can make, be hard to compete against if there's somebody who already is fluent in SQL or, you know, knows a lot of the, the concepts around the business, you know, the business domain that you're working in. So, um, so yeah, I think that it can, it can be a little bit more competitive now, or maybe there's just a lot of people who want to get into this field now. Um, and so that's why. I do think it's important to make sure that you're developing transferable skills um, like Python and, and, you know, 
being familiar with some of these machine learning concepts that you can apply to PhD research, um, but also apply to just like general, um, you know, growing your your tool set. Um, and uh, yeah, and then like leveraging that network so that you stand out um, above, you know, the hundreds of other applicants that maybe have uh, more direct industry experience. Well, kind of on a slightly different topic, I'd like to hear more about the founding of ATDS and um, getting that started and and then how you participated in some of the conferences, giving talks in the over the years. Yeah, so um, when I was still in grad school, I got involved with the AAAS through the um, women in astronomy like subcommittee um and was writing blog posts for the women in astronomy blog and that that's where a lot of those um data science transitioned posts what kind of they were cross posted there um and then after serving my year my like service on that committee i i was elected to the board of trustees or yeah, board. Of, I think it it was originally the council, but now board of trustees um, for the AAS, and so I served on that for three years, and that required having going to meetings, um, going to the AAS meetings, and having a board meeting um, before the the meeting started, um, and that you know was great because I I got to learn a lot about well how does AAS like as a professional organization function and what are how do the journals function and what are all the different things that they provide in terms of resources um but i also got to see a lot of the inner workings of the meetings and um was able to figure out a way to uh get a committee uh like a, a, a splinter meeting happen the the main issue was like trying to get the splinter meeting to happen but not requiring the the people who were not astronomers to have to pay the the same very expensive fees for the entire meeting because if you're a normal tech conference would maybe be a couple hundred dollars and and it can be a lot more for AAS and so and you don't have necessarily research grants that can cover it if you're um not not a an astronomer so so that around we worked on um having a new uh membership level um for uh for being a um like alum astronomer alumni which then gave you a discount at the meeting and and allowed you to it to be less expensive and so that was sort of a prerequisite to then being able to in my mind get a splinter meeting that would be in you know um people would be interested in coming to and be able to convince their employers to send them to. Um, and then uh, Jeff and Emily McLinden, uh, that very first meeting like helped with co-organizing. Um, Jeff did a lot of the work um, and uh, yeah, and I, I, I didn't, couldn't, didn't feel like I could do it by myself, but having that crew of people to, you know, pay for the room and get like sponsors for food and advertise it and get enough people to come and get speakers. Um, and then it was really popular both within people who had already made the transition, but also with postdocs and grad students who were 
interested in learning more about what that career track was and um, get exposed and network to folks who had already made the transition. And so I think when the first one was so successful, then that, um, you know, the AAS saw it as like, okay, we should make this a little bit easier to continue to do and ha has provided, I, I don't know exactly, because I, I stopped being part of the organizing committee after the first year, but I think the AAS has been a good partner and helped continue to make it happen. Um, so, uh, and yeah, I, I gave a few talks. I was at that point still on the board of trustees. So I was going, getting supported to go to all the meetings anyway. So it was quite easy to um, show up and then COVID happened. And um, so I stopped going to meetings in person, but I've participated in some remotely and I'll be participating in the one this year. If I don't know if it will have happened already by the time this comes out, but yep. Uh, and it's great. I mean, I, I, think that the community, both like the um, astronomers to, to data scientists, AAS meetings, we also have like a Facebook group. Um, for a while, we had like a group that was meeting up in person in the Bay Area. It's been a really great community for me. I, um, you know, I've gotten a lot of like, job kind of connections and, and not necessarily like, I'm hiring some, I'm getting hired by somebody, but just like meeting people, getting referrals. I've interviewed for jobs at like Stitch Fix where there's a lot of astronomers. Um, and it's just nice to have a group of people that you can go to and ask for input or advice or talk about challenges, whether it's technical challenges or managerial challenges or hiring challenges or trying to figure out where you want to go next in your career. Um, I just loved having that community of people that's outside my current job where there can be maybe some political reasons why you wouldn't want to like talk about job hunting with your, your, your team or whatever. So um, it's been great. And, you know, astronomers are awesome people. So it's been also fun to be able to go to the AAS and get to keep connected with my friends who have not left. So that's been great too. Yeah, just to, to echo some of that that history. Thanks for for uh, summarizing that. I hadn't, uh, we haven't chatted about that originating story of ATDS in a while. So it's always nice to hear that every once in a while. But yeah, uh, January, 2019 was was the first one at the winter meeting of the AAS, the first ATDS. And uh, yeah, since then, the the like you said, Jess, the, the community of, of data scientists, of astronomers has been very supportive and the AAS itself. Uh, you know, I, I have to definitely shout them out. The Employment on Committee has been, you know, incredibly supportive and helpful and uh, definitely provides funding for, you know, making sure that we have the space and the AV equipment and that we can run run a splinter session uh, every winter meeting. So uh, definitely big thanks to them. And uh, yeah, you know, they're, you know, kudos, they're, they're putting their money where their mouth is, right? The alumni affiliate membership still exists. It's still much cheaper than, you know, a normal academic researcher uh, uh, membership. Uh, and then having that gets you a, a much discounted, like you said, uh, uh, registration for the, the meetings as well. Uh, and, you know, a, a positive from COVID, which feels weird to say, but, you know, hybrid meetings, uh, like you also mentioned, Jess, are a thing. And uh, the AAS meetings, They've had different combinations of the amount of, you know, remote versus in-person and hybrid and stuff, but something that's been consistent uh, for a couple of years now is that the splinter meetings can be run hybrid and people can participate virtually without registration, without any cost to anyone. Um, and so that's really allowed our ATDS 
splinter session to be uh, very open for a couple of years now. So, you know, uh, astronomers or current data scientists who maybe, you know, couldn't get funding or don't have funding for even, you know, the, a discounted rate for the alums or, or a student rate or people that, you know, are in other countries, right? Different time zones, they're, they're participating, they're watching, they're watching their recordings. Um, so it's great that, that we have that opportunity and, and continue to have that opportunity to make things uh, very, very open and accessible. Um, even though, you know, being in person, you know, there are other events, there's more networking throughout the week of the AAS meetings, but uh, yeah, it's nice that we can put a lot of that for free out there in the universe. Um, cool, so uh, another question that, that I had for you, Jess, um, We've talked a bit about this over the years, but like I kind of want to hear maybe a, a condensed version of all your different moves because you've been at a number of companies, uh, a variety of companies from you know pretty small startups to Microsoft to you know a, a lot in between. Um, some of your moves have been more your choice, and some of your moves have been less your choice. Um, so I'd love to hear sort of you know some of those transitions and what the different uh, circumstances were and and sort of how you dealt with that because I've definitely heard people's concerns of well, you know, what is it like working for a huge company? What is it like working for a small company? You know, when a big company lays off 10% of its workforce and I get, you know, laid off, how, you know, how does that affect my life? When a small company goes under, how does that affect my life? You know, that kind of stuff. And so I think you're in a, you've got a lot of experience uh, around those kinds of situations. So I'd love to hear some of your, your feelings from the time and then looking back on it of like, oh, that actually wasn't too bad or, oh, that was terrible. And I'm glad I didn't realize it at the time or, you know, vice versa. Yeah, of course. Um, so one thing that I will say is that while it was super hard for me to get my first data science job, um, about six months into that job, I started getting recruiters reaching out to me on LinkedIn, people that I didn't know from not necessarily companies that I had ever applied to, encouraging me to apply for a job. And I was like, what is going on? Where were you six months ago? I'm not that different of a person. Um, but it turns out that, you know, basically me being able to like hold a job for six months and not get fired by Microsoft was all of a sudden this like indicator that, oh, okay, cool. She's vetted. So now we're going to reach out to her, and try to recruit her. Um, and so you know, I will say that that was the hardest job to get by far. Um, and while, you know, there's been a softer job market recently with a lot of layoffs and, and less hiring, um, it still is just much, much easier to find the, the subsequent roles, um, both once you have proved that you can make the transition, you have a network, you um, just have more applied experience. So even the interview process is like, doesn't require as much studying because you've been studying by doing your job basically. So, um, so my, my, I, I've, yeah, I have moved around quite a bit. I, I don't know if I would recommend it necessarily. I, I have a little, have had a little bit of a commitment problem at times where I don't stay places as long as probably um, I should have. Um, but one thing that I do really appreciate about the tech industry is it isn't that uncommon for people to move around every two years um, for a variety of reasons. Startups will, you know, shut down unexpectedly. Um, there are layoffs. Sometimes you want to learn a new skill set and get exposed to the 
greatest and best thing. And so you'll want to move to get that exposure. Um, and it's it's a hot industry that's growing often. And um, and so you're, you're kind of constantly getting opportunities and a way to move up quickly, um, especially if you're at a company that's not in a growth mode, is to move to another company and go and in that move, get kind of a promotion. So um, so a lot of my moves were because I was recruited and headhunted and then was being offered a like much bigger role um, that, you know, paid more and, and was a better title. So that was kind of enticing me to move. Um, uh, so yeah, I, um, I, I started off at, at Microsoft, um, and then was recruited to start a data science team at a very small ed tech company. Um, I was the 10th employee and the first data person. Um, and I, I didn't, I hadn't heard of the company, but I was really interested in education and kind of mixed my desire to do data and do tech, but also the academic world that I had been part of for a really long time. Um, and I think like, you know, one thing that's really cool about being at a very small company and being the only data science there is you're just kind of forced to learn a lot and do everything. Like I basically did data engineering. I did like, you know, algorithms implementation. I did analytics. I did business intelligence. Like I did all these different things um, because no, there was nobody else to do it. And I, I won't say that I was the best person or the fastest person or did it in the most efficient way, but, you know, it just exposed me to all the, all the different things that you can do as a data scientist. Um, and that also helped me figure out like, okay, which of these do I like the best? And, um, if I ever do want to focus in the future, what would my focus be? Um, I'm really glad that I had that experience early in my career, but I'm also really glad it wasn't my first experience because at Microsoft, I got, exposure to like how things work at scale, people who had been doing data engineering, data science for many, many years and could teach me the ropes and also to, um, yeah, like get exposed to a bunch of tooling and like establish things that I never would have been able to like build on my own or even think of on my own. So, um, yeah, I, um, I, with with that with that uh, second ed tech company I joined, we we got acquired by um, a larger ed tech company, and um, part of that acquisition meant that I was part of this like larger team that was out of a company that was based in Santa Clara, which was like a two hour commute, and um, yeah, like culturally it was a big shift. I didn't really feel the same way about that company that I did about the startup that I had joined um, and eventually was like terminated from that job um, because of like me not kind of getting along with the culture. And I was a little naive. I, I sort of would like call people out and stand up for things that I thought were not right. Um, and learned that like, yeah, when you do that to executives, that they don't always like that. And that doesn't, it's not always appreciated. Um, so that was a situation where like, I was, I was terminated um, for performance. Um, and that was 
pretty devastating, like to kind of have that happen and have that happen. Um, I guess that was like four years into my career and thinking like, oh my gosh, am I ever going to get another job? Like I, you know, I just got fired. Um, and you know, I, I share that not, not cause I'm proud of it. It's, it's definitely like embarrassing and like, you know, I'm, it was a very hard experience, but like, just to say that, like, you know, I was, I was able to get another job. I think like legally companies aren't supposed, aren't allowed to share why you left. And so like, you know, it, it was not, it's never been like an issue for um, future employment. And um, I think one of the things about the tech industry and people moving around and people will leave jobs to take a break before being ready for their next job. Um, people don't really ask you, well, you know, they might ask you, why are you looking, but they won't necessarily say like, well, what happened at your last job or whatever. And so you can, you can, without lying, just frame it as a way of like, yeah, you know, we didn't, it wasn't a good fit where it, you know, after the acquisition, I just didn't feel like that was the right role for me anymore. And, you know, um, so, uh, you know, that I, that I took a couple months off and then, um, got a job at a more like mid-sized startup. There was about 400 people, um, uh, a, a, a company that focused on getting, getting people jobs called hired. Um, and, worked there for a few years. Um, I, I, I like companies of that size. My current company is also about, um, 300 people to 300 people, I, especially as a manager. Um, cause you know, it's big enough that I can have a team and like, um, kind of influence the larger data science function, um, and try to get more of the company to use data and use testing to influence like strategy. Um, but it's not so big that there's a ton of like red tape or process to get things moving or to get a project um, ha to happen. Um, Microsoft was just, there was so, so much coordination across a bunch of different teams and dependencies that everything was quite slow and you had to kind of plan it out well in advance. And so it was harder to be creative or spontaneous. Um, and, and some people like that. Some people are like good with that rigidity and it, and it like being able to know what they're going to be working on for the next six months, but I, I'm not as good with that. And so, um, I think for me being in a smaller, smaller place or mid-sized place is nice because I have a little more flexibility. Um, and yeah, I, I, I also was at Slack for a while. Slack was about a thousand people when I joined. Um, and that was closer to the Microsoft experience of it being a, a larger organization and a little bit slower paced. Um, but I, I liked it because um, they, yeah, it, there was a lot more of the kind of like support and resources that were not there at the smaller companies, like a a whole infra team, a whole data engineering team, a whole bunch of like internal tools. Um, and they had a lot of people there that had come from Facebook. And so I learned a lot of like very good best practices of the way that like Facebook had set up their whole data pipeline. Um, and there was just so much data because 
you know, there are like hundreds of thousands of Slack communities and they're spending all day, every day on Slack, like putting messages and doing actions. So it was, I had never worked at that scale where it was just like so intense to so much intense amount of data. And you had to really think about how do I like optimize this and how do I like make reduction pipelines so that I can actually like make sense of all of this information. Um, so I learned a lot there just about working at scale. Um, uh, and then I joined a friend startup as like the first non-founder and built out the entire technical org. So I, I was the head of data and engineering and hired out, hired like 30 people um, and, you know, eventually spun up a, a separate engineering team and sped up different data science teams. But um, that was super interesting of just like figuring out more how to like build out a company and see a company go from two people to 30 people. There's just like a lot of changes of how you need to operate and like um, you know, work together. So, so seeing those transitions was, was really interesting in managing that change. Um, but ultimately like, I don't know if I'm particularly well-suited to managing like organizations. I like, I like having a team where I can kind of know every, know what's going on with all the people below me. And when you start managing managers or managing teams of people, you know, it like, you, you feel very removed and um, you don't get to do as much data science or technical things. Um, but also it's, it's just feels a lot more like you're, you're just shuffling around resources or like keeping track of like, you know, making sure people know the right information and connecting people. And it, it, it just, it's, it's not as interesting to me as like actual math problems. So um but I'm glad I had that experience. Like I wouldn't have known that, but, um, but I think for me, like, you know, managing a team of individual contributors is like my favorite thing. Maybe, maybe I'll eventually manage a team of managers again, but um, I like, I think it's a great combination of both being able to talk about technical problems and feel like I'm still involved, but also have more impact than if it were just me doing like hands-on keyboard stuff. So, um, so my current job at ThreadUp uh, yeah, I have a team, um, and I, my, my ownership is the, the product. I, we partner with the product, the product managers and, and do everything around data science for the app and the website and the, the customer experience. Um, so there's another data team that does like marketing analytics, and there's another team that does operations for our warehouses and I do the product. So I just and, talked to for a long time. I'll pause. No, what, one, one final footnote I, I want to add, or maybe really quick question that I think I know the answer to. So over those, I think, five to seven companies, depending exactly how you count it, and 10 you know, years on the calendar, uh, how many cities have you lived in? Well, I, I've always lived in the Bay Area. I did move from Oakland to Berkeley, but just like half a mile um yeah. from one side of the border to the other but I have I have always lived in the same place I I um I loved I loved uh being at Berkeley and I stayed in Berkeley and um after grad school and um some of those jobs are in San Francisco somewhere in the East Bay but yeah I've I've never never had to move which has been great because I love it here yeah and that's sort of the the point behind the question right I feel one of the 
you know, one of many awesome things that, that I think is great and even more so now in the last couple of years about uh, data jobs in the tech industry is you don't have to bounce around the country or the world like many academics uh, end up having to do. So uh, that is certainly a nice thing and people can live in the Bay Area or within a few block radius in the Berkeley Oakland border. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in that there is a really high volume of data jobs in the Bay Area, but yeah, since 20. 2020, there's actually a lot of places that are fully remote or distributed. My husband just got a job at a place that's distributed. So he's choosing to stay here, but he could also work from Japan or, you know, New York or Hawaii or wherever. And I'm sure he will at times do that, you know, wanting to take an extended vacation somewhere. So, um, and there's a lot of places like that. And Jeff is in a position like that too. So um, it's great. One thing I'm wondering about, out of all the projects that you've been a part of, um, not necessarily as individual contributor, but also as manager, um, do you have like a, a favorite that you're allowed to talk about that um, maybe going in you were really excited about and the outcome lived up to your expectations? Yeah, well, so one that was really cool um, so when I was at the company that was helping people find jobs, um, it's very common in the tech industry to have these like kind of fun few days or week called a hackathon where anybody can kind of come up with an idea and then just have a few days to like try to work on it, um, or get a team of people to work on it. And, and a lot of those ideas will then get turned into, parts of a product or like, like a, a project, but it's, it's a way for people who are the individual contributors to kind of um, demonstrate like things that are cool and, and get part them kind of prioritized in the company. So I did a hackathon where I, um, at the time we weren't, we weren't taking any collecting any demographics about our, the people that we were helping find, find jobs. We just had their names um, you know, and I knew that, uh, there was this like wage gap that had been discussed about women making like 73 cents on the dollar to men. And so I was curious if we could see that in our data. Um, but because we didn't know the gender, it was a little bit hard to do it directly. So, um, so I basically did this analysis where I predicted based on people's names, like what their gender was. So, you know, like, Sam would have a like low certainty of of being man or, man or woman, but like Jessica would probably be high certainty of being a woman. Um, and then uh, saw like for people who had the same years of experience and were going out for the same like job title, um, you know how were how were the the salaries differing? And we had you know tens of thousands of, of people who had found jobs through our site over many, you know, thousands of companies. Um, so it was like an interesting data set because it was, it was, a, it was like bigger than, you know, than maybe you could do for just internally analyzing a single company. Um, and so that, that found that, oh yeah, like there is a gender um, wage disparity um, that, you know, people who have a name that is highly um, likely to be male, um, when you control for things like years experience and title are getting higher job offer salary offers than women. Um, and then that turned into kind of like a whole 
thing that a set of initiatives that we tried to kind of address with the product. So we started um, collecting optional demographic information and then giving employers tools around like, hey, this is what is the normal range for this job to try to help, you know, take out that bias of giving like different um, offers to different people um and do more like education on the platform about um about gender and race bias and and then we published results of how like our what our data was showing and the wage gap between different identities and did that year over year and showed how our interventions were helping reduce the wage gap so um so that was like super cool because I I it was a project that I just kind of came up with it turned into a whole series of like work that the company did. I got to like represent the work in media interviews and like talk to like the Washington Post, the New York Times about like the thing that work. And so, um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was a really, really fun, fun set of work and very kind of, I think easy to understand for everybody, like even my grandma or, you know, um, so yeah. That's one. <laughs> All right. Cool. I think we're we're getting to the point in the podcast where we have to, you know, think about the future and, and future looking. We talked about the past. We talked about, you know, some of the stuff that you've done, some of the advice, you know, I think that you might give current folks, uh, you know, looking to make the transition and, and things like that. But looking ahead, you know, say five years, where do you see, I think both where do you see, you know, data science as a field, uh, you know, especially as it pertains to maybe academics trying to get in the field or, or continuing in that field. Uh, and where do you see yourself? Uh, you mentioned a little bit, maybe, maybe manager of managers, maybe continuing with your team happily. Um, but uh, yeah, where, where do you see yourself going and, and the fields kind of as a whole in the next few years? Yeah, so I mean, I think a big hot area right now in tech and in data science is these large language models like ChatGPT, OpenAI, um, and that is just this. Now that we have kind of the capacity for computers to, like, take huge and huge amounts of information and find patterns automatically um, and make predictions on those patterns, it's like it's it's super cool. Um, it involves deep learning and um, and language models. And so so that's an area that I'm personally very excited about. Um, I you know, so I, I work at ThreadUp. It's like an online retail company for used clothing. Um, and you know, right now, the way that you would interact with most retail is you say, all right, I'm looking for, you know, a black dress that is knee length and the used materials and you can filter down and like find the thing that you want. But, you know, I can imagine a future where you could say, hey, I'm, I'm going to a wedding next weekend in Napa and I want something to wear and the model will, the large language model will know like, okay, Napa, this is the weather prediction for next weekend. Weddings, these are the type of colors that are appropriate for a wedding. Like, and you could even say like, okay, can you show me some, some photos of you at other weddings and could analyze themes and the clothing that you've worn before and like help find something that's both like, 
you know, on trend now, but would be weather appropriate, would be occasion appropriate and would fit your body well based on images you've uploaded. Like there's, there's a lot of like potential there to just really like use things in a completely new way um, to not only help you find the things you want, but also like inspire you to try things that you maybe wouldn't have thought of. Um, so that's where I'm really excited about and the kind of work that my team is is focusing on right now is thinking about how can we leverage these new tools to, um, you know, help have a better experience for our customers and help them find things that they are looking for or that they didn't even know they were looking for, but that are going to kind of delight them and and be a good match for them in terms of their, their clothing choices. Um, so that, that's, that's an area, I mean, I know it's very like, um, you know, trendy right now. And I'm not of the camp that like LLMs are, you know, going to make every, you know, jobs obsolete or like art real intelligence. Like, I don't think it's actual cognition, but I do think that it is a way to synthesize way, 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 way more information than we've been able to as like individuals, you know, training a model. Um, and, and there's a lot of like cool things you can do with, with those, those tools that were not possible, you know, a year or two ago. So, um, so I'm excited about that. For someone who is trying to make the transition from academia to data science, do you have any recommendations on online courses or books or, you know, what, what might be the most impactful thing that they could do as they're approaching this transition? Yeah, I I mean, I, I did talk about this in some of my blog posts. I don't think my advice has changed a ton. Um, I, I think it's important to know some technical skills um, to have exposure to a modern language like Python and um, if you can like use SQL or some sort of like database and know how to access data from a database, that is very useful. I did not know that before I transitioned, but I, I, I wish I had because it, it's very important. I've used it at every job I've had. Um, I, I think there are a lot of like cool courses to teach you about machine learning models, to teach you about how to do deep learning or like language, natural language processing or interact with large language models. There's like a lot of cool things out there for free. Um, you know, MIT has courses that are out there um, for free. There's Coursera. You know, I, I actually haven't taken many of these myself because I've learned most things like on the job. So I'm not maybe the best person to give advice about specific books or, um, or courses, but like, you know, a, a lot of my colleagues, have done things on like Coursera um, and and found those really useful. And a lot of them are free. I don't know if you need like the certificate to pay for the certificate, but just being, you know, getting the content and, and learning going through the practice, I think is more important um, and understanding the concepts. Uh, I, you know, I think though that it's still going to serve you better. Like if the choice was to spend, you know, five hours doing a Coursera course on your own, 
or five hours doing things where you're out there and you're meeting people in the field, like, or you're doing like a hackathon or you're, you're going to a, a meetup or you're, you're going to a talk. I think that that time is better spent because I think those personal interactions are going to be more fruitful um, than trying to learn something from a book um, in terms of like breaking in and having, having that, that kind of um, getting in your foot in the door. So while it's great when I see people who have done a whole bunch of Coursera courses, um, I think that I don't value that as highly as having actual job experience or doing an actual project or, um, or an internship or something like that. And so I, I, I would try to prioritize having those more connections or doing things that are, have a product that you can show at the end. Um, insight, I think one of the reasons why Insight is so successful is because you do focus on having this tangible project and then it's really a networking opportunity where you're put in front of a whole bunch of companies and you've got your foot in the door to show what you've, you've done. Um, but you're not like learning. I mean, I didn't do Insight, but like there's no way you can learn everything in five weeks. Like you're just, you know, it's mainly just helping demonstrate something to people to get your foot in the door. And so you don't need to do Insight to do that if you can like leverage making connections in your network. And if you can do some projects yourself that um, teach you some of these skills. One more thing I will say is, um, you know, I've had internships at most of the companies I've worked at and will have PhD students or undergrad students or master's students as interns. I think that PhD students don't necessarily think about looking into industry internships, or maybe they feel like discouraged by their advisors to take a break from their research um, to do industry internships, but especially if you can find something that will teach you some skills that can be applied to your research or, you know, work on your thesis, I think it is a very valuable thing to do if you think you want to go into industry. Um, it also like will pay a lot better than grad school. And so it's a way to kind of like get a little bit of extra money to like get you over kind of the 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 end of your grad school experience um, financially. So that's something I wish I had done or like had been available when I was in graduate school because I think it would have, um, you know, helped me kind of have that experience and that in to get the job after I graduated. And most internships for the summer have applications around January, February. So that would be the time to look for the following summer for, for internships. I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I know that when I was applying for jobs, I also, I found this one internship that was um, with astronomers and machine learning scientists together. Like and they would be going to different teams and, over the summer, work on a certain project, FDL, I think it was, I don't remember what that stands for, but um, yeah, I ended up withdrawing from the application process because I got hired already on a full-time job, but that looked really interesting to me as I was in my job search. And it would have been only like three months in, it was in person in, I think in the Bay area, but I think they're also doing one in Europe now. So um, for anyone looking, like, I think our, our audience might be interested in something like that as well. Um, but many companies will do internships. Um, and I know that at my company, 
PACAR, we had several interns this past summer who had already, who had just graduated from their bachelor's degree. And so it, it just kind of showed how tough the job market is that like the only people who got the internships were the ones who are were finishing up, not the ones who were in between years. Um, that's not ideal, I know, but it was a tough year. Thanks for coming on our, our podcast, Jess. Great. Yeah. And I'm um, Berkeley Jess at, on all my social, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, Berkeley, like the university, and then J-E-S-S, one word. So add me, find me. Um, I'm happy to, um, yeah, connect to people. And my my blog is also berkeleyjust.blogspot.com. So you can find a lot of stuff about data science on that blog. But yeah, this is great. I'm excited to see some of y'all at ATDS. And I'm really glad that you guys are doing this podcast and getting more of this advice and information out there. I wish it had been out there when I was looking. So I'm glad it's getting out there now. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Jess. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Astronomers Turn Data Scientists podcast. Please subscribe so you can find out when we release future episodes.